Welcome to the Brain Fever Podcast. This is a story of Jackie Stebbins, who is a lawyer, a mother, a wife, and an autoimmune encephalitis survivor. She wishes to tell her story about her fight with autoimmune encephalitis and her recovery. Now, here's your host, Jackie Stebbins. first week of November that the Brain Fever podcast is coming back to you. We just finished Halloween and guess what? It was the top three coldest Halloweens in North Dakota's history. So if y'all are new to the Brain Fever podcast, if you downloaded it today, no matter where you are, I believe you are listening to the Brain Fever podcast with me, the host, Jackie Stebbins, an autoimmune encephalitis survivor that frequently goes on tangents. So the first tangent I will go off on is that it feels like Christmas, even though, again, first week of December, it was number two of cold Halloweens in Bismarck. It was, I don't know, whatever. It was like three degrees. It was insane. Um, The coldest Halloween was in 1991 when I was in first grade. And the third coldest Halloween was in like 1864, about the time I was in kindergarten. So we donned our long johns and may or may not have spiked our hot chocolate and went trick-or-treating. That means that I am still very exhausted and my decrepit body hurts. But there's a little bit of a reason I'm telling you this because the guest today, who's kind of the guest, but she's actually going to be the host. Her name is Mariah Botha. And Mariah and I have been messaging about this podcast. And yesterday I told her I was super cold from Halloween, blah, blah, blah. I'm old. My joints hurt. And I'm like, that's it. You know, I'm I'm walking around like I'm 89. <laughs> she very wittily and quickly replied back, um, Jackie, you don't look a day over 87. And I said, Dang, Mariah, that's why you are on the podcast. So this is my friend Mariah Both, and I got to tell you a little story about her um, because you know me, I'm full of lots of little stories, short and long. So Mariah is a lot younger than I am, like a lot. (laughs) And so I hadn't seen her in years and years. Of course, I know her because she hails from the same small town that I do, Bowman, North Dakota. So a few years ago, there was a family funeral and I was standing inside the doorway in the church and this beautiful woman just comes in hot at me. And she's talking to me and she's like, Jackie, how are you? And for someone who prides myself on instantly knowing people and knowing their names, I was like drawing a blank. And I'm like, who is this super cool woman who is talking to me? And it took me a minute and I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is Mariah. This is the Mariah that I probably knew as a kiddo. So she's really good friends with one of my little cousins. And we had a great time that weekend reconnecting. We connected on social media 
And she's not a kiddo anymore. She's a wife. She's a mother. She's a director of um, a rural healthcare foundation. She's a grant writer for rural healthcare. And she's a cat rescue mama, which, which I love about her. So a while back, this is a few months ago, she writes me the most beautiful Facebook message. And she's like, Jackie, I read your book. I just can't believe it. Um, she told me it made her laugh. It made her cry. It gave her a lot of empathy, which I loved. And she mentioned a little bit about, you know, those feels of when you can't sleep or, you know, kind of that anxious feels um, and shared a little bit with me about how that resonated with her, which I really appreciated because I think if we're women and we're going to talk mental health, we're going to talk about things like anxiety and sleep. So I love that that resonated with her. And she said, Jackie, I just have so many questions to ask you. And I was like, well, why don't you interview me on my podcast? So that's why we're here. She gave me a five-star review and I didn't even make her. That was not part of the deal to be on the podcast. She gave me a beautiful review and just said that what I really appreciated was that after all we'd been through, after all we had gone through, um, that my family could still smile and laugh. And I love that. So Mariah Botha, um, is a business administrative school type person. Um, people that excel in business are people who aren't me. She is the director for the Sunrise Foundation based out of our hometown of Bowman, North Dakota, but she lives in Dickinson. If you've heard me speak and I talk about having to drive 70 miles to a to a red stoplight, learning how to drive in Bowman. Um, the town we would drive to is Dickinson. That's where she lives now. She's in the big city, but she is kind of a work from home gal and can still plug into what is such an important issue, rural healthcare in America. It's not just a North Dakota thing. It's, it's a thing around the country. And um, I was going through their website today. She's also a grant writer, which it just makes my nerdy heart so happy. And I was thinking about just what a small interconnected world this is. My grandma was on the hospital auxiliary board, you know, many years ago. My grandma became a nurse in World War II. And so that connection to the Bowman Hospital is very strong in me. And yeah, I just, I love Mariah. She's fun. Let me tell you, she is as smart as she is beautiful. And that is saying something. And I want to welcome her today to the Brain Fever Podcast. Mariah, let's go. Thank you so much. Those are all very kind words. I appreciate it. I love you and your family so much. I'm very excited to be here to pick your brain on your wonderful book. Oh, I love it. What she didn't say is I love your family, except for my little brother, David, who's a little well, closer to her age. <laughs> we'll, we'll stay kind in this one, right? <laughs> That's true. We, yes. we would need um, more time and possibly a shot of alcohol to cover your right? brother and mine. So we'll stay away from that. No, David's great. Your whole family is wonderful. And I'm very appreciative to be here to quiz you on some things. I love it. Well, Mariah, it's all yours. Um, you know, I'm literally holding a book on my life. It's all out there, absent what color of underwear I'm wearing. So if that's your first question, it is what it is. But other than that, it's all you. I, I scratched that one out. So I'll go to my next one. <laughs> <laughs> so your book grabbed me in many ways, um, but nothing more than when you talked about your sleep anxiety as a child, right in the very beginning. I actually took a picture, sent it to my mom, and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's another human out here that suffered from this. Because I remember being very young and the way you described it was so similar to how I felt. 
I remember feeling very alone and like I was the only person awake in the world. I would look at the clock constantly and start counting like, oh, if I get only this many hours of sleep, I'm not going to be able to function at school tomorrow. And it was so stressful. Um, thankfully, I had a mom who was very supportive, you know, love my dad to death, but he was more of the like, why don't you just count some sheep and go to sleep? Like it was that easy, right? <laughs> right? Just go to sleep. Yes. But no, my mom was very supportive. Um, she read a lot of books on how to help with anxiety in children. And I'm very thankful for that because it could have been a lot harder than it was. So my question for you, as somebody who also suffered from this, do you have any advice or suggestions for parents who may have a child that's suffering from sleep anxiety or any type of anxiety? Oh my gosh, Mariah, that's so such good comments and then such a great question. And so I'm going to do what I always do and hijack the question and first tell a few stories <laughs> or a few thoughts. So I love that that resonated with you. No one has ever asked me about that. The only thing I can think of is my law partner and I used to laugh about some of our same like nervous tendencies and thought we were kind of two of the, the only people in the world. But, you know, and we laughed it off. Well, now I look back, you know, Mike and I were so closely aligned running this law firm. Lawyers are type A people, we're stressed out people, we're wound up people. And that's that was that was all the credit I ever gave it, right? So now years later, even post AE, it took years to get to the mental health component of my life, which even when I was writing the book, I hadn't fully accepted that like, yes, raise my hand, like this applies to me. So now that I look back at that, clearly I had dreadful anxiety, probably since the day I was born, but I specifically remember it beginning when I was about 10 in fourth grade. Um, and that's what I'm alluding to in the book, which, you know, we can get to this later too, but if I would write this book today, it would be different. I wouldn't be as hard on myself as I think I was. And two, I would, I wouldn't just be paying mental health lip service. Like I would actually um, accept and acknowledge it. So what I really could not accept, and, and this is leading up to when I had my miracle baby in 2020, I remember saying something to my mom and she's like, yeah, I, you know, it's probably just general anxiety. And I was like, no, like I was still saying that the 2020 by my watch is not that long ago. And it was post AE. So it, it took my debilitating panic attacks and depression full fledged in 2021 to finally get beat over the head again with a board and say like, Oh, and then it, it just seemed so easy once I acknowledged it and defined it and said mental, like mental health or anxiety. And I think that's been my struggle. Um, I would say the depression is more from AE. I think I've been hardwired for anxiety my whole life. So once I could say that, like identifying something and giving it a name kind of takes away its power. And just knowing that that noise in my ears, that's what it was. The noise that was like, go harder, do better. If you do this, something bad will happen. And then you won't be great or you won't be good. That noise in my ears that I struggled to deal with my whole life. I used to use working out as a way to cope with it. Then I used my work as a workaholic to cope. And all of a sudden now I, my body's decrepit, like we talked about, and I don't have my career. So how do I cope with life? How do I tame that noise in my ears? So there's kind of that backstory. And then, so to kind of answer your question, you know, I think about that a lot with my kids because now again, embracing mental health 
and saying like, look, there's a lot of this in my family. You know, I, I noted in the book, there's alcoholism in my family and, and per my mom, alcoholism is, you know, depression is a cousin, all of this. I see it more now. I understand it. Um, and so I watch my kids, I think more closely, not that my parents didn't by any means, but it was the eighties and the Mm nineties. And I won't say I wouldn't put blame on them. It's any blame is on me just for being so, so stubborn. And, and I think maybe I was too judgmental. So I, you know, I would maybe think that that would be reciprocated like, oh, well, people will judge me. The idea of a counselor, I think in, in our small town um, in the eighties and nineties would have been kind of unheard of. And mm-hmm. plus it, right. Do we have a lot of counselors in those areas kind of goes back to, to the rural healthcare that you're so enmeshed in. So, but, but there's no excuse by the time you're an adult in college and law school and you're, it's almost like I couldn't control myself. Right. Like the whole book is Jackie, like failing to heed the warning signs. So I watch my kids and just little things, Mariah, like they know I see a counselor. They may not totally understand my story right now at all. They they get glimpses, but they know I have a counselor. And just, I think talking about it, like, hey, this is super normal. I have a counselor, or I think I've talked about anxiety a little bit, or if I, I see them getting nervous or closing themselves off, like we talk about it. So for me, I guess, personally, I think just acknowledging it is a huge part of the battle. So they know that if they come to me someday and are just like, mom, like this is like, I feel this way, or maybe they're telling me how they feel and I can kind of see through it. So I think for me personally, just being open to mental health will hopefully like help my kids more than I was kind of able to help myself. Absolutely. And I think you're right. You know, back in the day, you know, I'm, I'm much younger, but I think even when I was younger, there was still such a stigma around it. You know, I don't want to go to a counselor, especially in a small town where everybody knows everybody. So you don't want to go to a counselor that you might run into at the grocery store. You know, it's, I feel like it's different in a bigger place, but I also think the times have changed so much. It's not as like this scary, you know, judgmental illness. You know, there's a lot of people who have mental illness and I think some of the healthiest mentally healthiest people are in counseling. So I think that's great to like, look for the signs for your kids. You know, I, I have a four and a half year old and we've already seen a doctor because I was noticing a lot of those similar traits in her that I had when I was a kid. And she actually started play therapy, which is a wonderful program. They, they don't even know they're in therapy. It's fun for them, but it helped her become confident it helped her control her anxiety a little bit. So yeah, I think just being open with your kids and not creating a stigma about it is huge. I love that, Mariah. And I I agree. I think there's so many options now. I know like in Bismarck, there's the Children's Therapy Center. And I worked with a lot of those gals in practice. And I just, I learned so much, which again, hit me in the head with a board. I was constantly enmeshed in, you know, mental health and addiction and all these things, but like, I could never see anything like penetrating me. So I'm going to flip the question on you. I love that you said you'd be lying awake, like, uh, okay, in 20 more minutes, it's going to be 1030. And then I'm going to be tired. That's exactly how I thought. Um, And then you'd get, you know, more stress, of course, which isn't conducive to going to sleep. But I always, I thought that I was weird. I thought that there was kind of something wrong with me, even probably into high school where I would just try to like bury these feelings and move on. Did you ever kind of feel like that? Just not even just isolated, but like 
something's wrong with me. This is so weird. I can't talk about it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my friends, they didn't, they didn't have those issues. If I would have a sleepover, they wouldn't have those issues. Um, my brother, I mean, he had a little bit, I think when he was younger, he was more of the, like, I need to get to bed at this time, but he could fall asleep. So yeah, I felt really strange. Like, why is it so hard for me? Why am I making it such a big deal? But that's what anxiety is. You can ask yourself, why am I doing this or stop doing this? But that's anxiety. You can't, it, it right. controls you. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> why is this so hard? Yep. Yep. It, if it was rational, I wouldn't have had a nervous breakdown, panic attack in Fargo, and I could have just driven home <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. in 2021, where I've written about that extensively and, and in yeah. the months that would follow or that post AE, I didn't just say, well, whatever, I don't care. I can like fly to London by myself. <laughs> no. So, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's that's, and, and would you agree with me that once you kind of know and you can just label it and talk about it, you really do take its power when you when you feel that noise in your mind saying like, oh, man, this is going to be this. And then that if you stop and you're like, stop, no more like this is the anxiety talking. It really does help because then you're like, all right, I can move on a little. Um, it's it's really helped me a lot. Absolutely. For sure. Um, you kind of actually answered one of my questions, but I'd like to jump <laughs> to that one, which I love. That's great. But um, speaking of anxiety, because that's that's what most of my questions were based around since I am somebody who suffers from anxiety. Um, that was part of your book that really hit home with me. But early in the book, you sound slightly opposed to medication for yourself with stress and anxiety. Um, with that being said, I never felt like you were being judgmental towards other people. It was more like, I'm Jackie. I'm strong. I can do this. I don't need the medication, but if you need the medication, that's great. Like that's kind of how I took it, which is wonderful. You're not judging other people who struggled with that, but you were kind of opposed for yourself. Now I know the AE was the true diagnosis, but like you had just discussed, you know, there was some anxiety, some depression that came with it. And you can admit that now did I interpret that correctly though in the beginning that it was very much like you don't you don't need the medication something else is wrong I wish that I could give myself that courtesy that you just did I think that's very sweet of you but sometimes um I worry that I was far too judgmental about mental health I mean and I'm not going to totally throw myself under the bus because like my mom I don't think I was silently judging my mom I think she was open about depression mm -hmm. It's almost like a twin track. There was me being too stubborn, too judgmental, and I'm an Enneagram one. And I can I can blame my judgmental on being Enneagram one and be like, oh no, I'm just observant and wound up. Or I can admit some, you know, flaws and say, no, sometimes that's too, I'm being judgmental. But there's kind of that other track too, where I think I really just didn't get it. And I hope that a conversation like we just had the last five minutes really helps others because I'm not going to lie as much as I was dealing with it with skilled professionals in my capacity as trial lawyer. It was like, I still didn't get it. I think I thought you were like born with mental health problems, right? Or this isn't, I don't believe I ever, ever believed that you could like work yourself to this, even though they were con just constantly talking about that in law school CLEs, right? Or legal CLEs, which to me is, is a little bit of a mark on the profession. We need to quit just talking about talking and like having some hardcore people that suffer with things, whatever. That's a side note. That's kind of a role I hope I'm I'm somewhat filling 
um, for other lawyers. But I think if I would have heard conversations like you and I had, it's it's not like anxiety is like, oh my gosh, I'm so nervous. I can't leave the house. Or like I had a great aunt who could fret about anything. And like, it was kind of a joke and she's so worried. That was never my my problem. So I think that part of it, that's why I didn't really understand I had anxiety. I mean, even as an adult, I'm like, I must just be weird. Like, why am I always so wound up? Um, it's because I had high functioning anxiety. Like that's the name for it. That's what I had. I was very high functioning. It never kept me home, but, um, you know, when I was able to cope healthily and, and safely, you know, I didn't engage in any dangerous behaviors. Thank goodness. Um, so with kind of that, that was I too judgmental? Yes. Did I have a misunderstanding? Yes. And I think there's some truth to what you're saying that in a lot of ways, I was like, Hey, if you need, you know, medication or like whatever you need to do, stay healthy. Yes. I was supportive, but it's kind of, I'm just such a double-edged sword. It's the same. And I alluded to this in the book. I was going to take Thursdays off. Right. I, everybody was like, you need a vacation. You need to stop working so hard. And I told my law partner, I'm going to take Thursdays off. He's like, great, Jackie, like, that's a good idea. And then of course I didn't fall through and I wouldn't do it. When people in the office were sick, I was like, go home. When one of our assistants had a baby, I'm like, people deserve maternity leaves. I was not afforded that early in practice at all. Um, Part of it, I wasn't afforded it in my job. And then on my second baby, I didn't afford it to myself. That was my own fault. So I was always like encouraging others to put themselves first, but I wouldn't do that for myself. And I think for me, that was more of a boundaries problem. Um, and again, thinking that I was invincible and like, oh, everybody, like I could coddle them with, you know, kid gloves. But like, for me, I was almost abusive to myself. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think some of it too was, yeah, just always putting myself last and not having good boundaries, which is another thing. And that's definitely a mental health component that I've learned from running myself ragged and then being pissed off about it isn't really helpful. That was also hard lessons, you know, after getting sick. So I think some of it too, Mariah, for me really came down to boundaries. And once I learned how to set boundaries for positive mental health, some of these issues I think have kind of worked themselves out with me. And I'm not afraid of medication. I was, I was that like, oh, I don't. But again, that was the invincible stupid Jackie. Now it's like, well, do you want to have panic attacks and feel awful? Or do you want to take Zoloft? Pretty, you know? So uh, I just, I had a lot to learn. You'd think being a well-educated, you know, whatever 34 year old woman, I had a few of those things figured out. I didn't, (laughs) I'm still working on it. Well, it has to do with that stubbornness. I get it because I'm a stubborn human too. It's, it's something that when your mind is set, you're set. That's how it is. I'm fine. I don't need this. It's going to be okay. And you're, you're totally right. Why suffer when there's something that can help you? And, you know, with medication, I also believe counseling is very important. I don't believe, you know, you should just be given medication and that should be your only solution. I feel like a lot of times that can be a band-aid. I feel like digging deeper with a counselor, like they go hand in hand together. And that's typically when people are most successful in Um, helping their anxiety and depression. So with that being said as well, you know, I am somebody who recently found out that I have an autoimmune stomach issue that I'm I'm dealing with. I'm doctoring. I have a great doctor I'm dealing with. Um, In your book, it sounds like you had wonderful medical professionals helping you out. With that being said, 
I still feel like it's so important that everybody is their own healthcare advocate because something I've noticed with having that diagnosis of anxiety, a lot of doctors will push, well, this might be your anxiety causing this, you know, oh, your stomach is upset because you're having anxiety. And I'm like, I know I have anxiety, but I know my body really well too. And something's not right. So, I mean, this is kind of a no duh kind of question, but just if you wouldn't mind talking about how important it is to be your own healthcare advocate, no matter how good the healthcare professionals you are seeing are. Such great comments and questions. So first off, I am so sorry that you are dealing with an autoimmune disorder. I just, I hate them more and more each day. Um, So many women in my life are dealing with them. And I think what you said is, is so true that then sometimes it's like, well, is this your anxiety or is this that, um, that can be kind of the, the pitfall, I think of being so open about your mental health, um, when it comes to then your own, your own doctoring and to be your own advocate. So it's so important. I'm working on publishing a blog right now about the humility post AE and, I have been so, so blessed in this most wretched illness, right? I can look at it as it just wrecked my life. What was me? Or I can say, okay, it did happen, but wow, like all the good luck I have. I had Dr. Dunnigan. I had Steph, you know, their life-saving actions. I have had the good fortune to be able to travel to Mayo via car and plane and be a patient there. I mean, it's just like the good luck for me abounds. I also don't ever downplay how lucky I am to go into this disease as a lawyer. And my counselor says it all the time. It's like, if anyone was, you know, ripe and ready and willing to deal with AE, it was me. And just the extensive background I have in asking the right questions, or honestly, just being the biggest, most aggressive pain in the ass when I need to be, um, that's just a really natural (laughs) trait. Um, and of course, doctors love lawyers. So that kind of works against me. But, you know, I'm I'm inherently skeptical. Um, I'm inherently probably more judgmental than I want to be. I'm also inherently very skeptical and I will push and probe until I can get the right way. And it's just in the practice of law, if anybody ever shut a door, are you kidding me? I opened six windows and climbed out them, right? Like that's just the way I am, no stone unturned. So for that very reason, I'm lucky. I can comb through medical records. I can find them. I can print them. I have so much as like brought a medical record in and like highlighted it and showed it to my doctor where he was just like, well, I I don't think you're supposed to wean off this medication. I just like printed it from mail. I spend a lot of time on my patient portals. I take notes. I'm just a detailed, organized kind of person. And that has served me so well. And so many times I've just looked at my you know, family and said, how are other people doing this without my knowledge and the sophistication I learned over the years from my work and my abilities or the financial blessings that have been bestowed upon me from various forms of insurance and planning, you know, I planned for what could my life look like in the event the worst thing happened and the worst thing kind of did, right? Um, being, you know, prevented from your occupation, but not dead. And and I, I talked about that in the book, right? So with all of these blessings, I 
I feel like at this point I've earned a medical degree. I feel like I'm my own hospitalist. Sometimes it's very, very, very frustrating when I know I'm jumping through hoops that it's like, I'm going to go here and then they're just going to tell me to call my primary. And I know she's going to be backed up for three months. And I'm glad you alluded to the mental health. This actually happened to me not that long ago. I did have a serious physical, you know, medical problem. I landed in the ER for a while and I kind of knew what was going on. And, you know, a few of the doctors were like, well, you know, maybe they weren't brushing me off, but it was like, you know, could this be anxiety? And it was kind of funny because it was, you know, my counselor, my psych med, we all talked about, we're like, yeah, no, this was an anxiety. This was a medical, you know, and I don't think that doctor was just tossing me to side, but I was like the same as you, Mariah, you know, I know my body now, especially with all of its rare intricacies. And Mm -hmm. I, I have a pretty good pulse on it, but I just to be very honest, I think that's one of the biggest problems with healthcare. Um, the right hand doesn't talk to the left. And if you don't have those abilities, as I do, to stay very organized, to stay very on top of it, and sometimes be a little forceful when I've needed to and I've had to, to protect myself, you know, so I can stay alive and be healthy for my family. If, if you don't have those traits, I worry that a lot of people do fall through the cracks and I don't have a great answer. Healthcare is expensive and insurance and all that stuff. It's hard if you don't have the means and the time and the finances and the support. So what I can say is I count my blessings. And if anyone listening is like, Jackie, that's me. Like I'm falling through the cracks. I can't keep this organized, you know, do the best you can enlist the help of others. You know, sometimes um, you need to bring other people to appointments with you to have another set of eyes or ears, or if that's not your comfort level to be confrontational with a doctor, then bring someone whose comfort level it is, you know, and that's not being weak. A lot of us um, need other people to help us with our healthcare and to coordinate. My friend Becky was just fighting cancer and she passed away about two months ago. And I know some of her last posts on social media, she was so frustrated about trying to coordinate her own care And that was just, that's a hard reality when you're fighting for your life. You know, Sean and my mom were my voice for a long time when I didn't have a voice. So I think it's so important. You know yourself, fight for yourself, you know, fight for your health. And if that's not something you can do, ask for help. And it's not, it's not being weak. It's being smart. You know, there's a lot of people who would feel embarrassed or uncomfortable having somebody go along with them. And it's helpful. I mean, there's times at doctor's appointments where you're getting a million different words thrown at you and you can't remember what was said. And it's so important to have somebody there at times when you're feeling overwhelmed to help or record, record what's being talked yes. about. Yep. Listen Take back notes. to the conversation. Absolutely. Um, you talk about Sean and your mom being your voice you, you truly have an amazing family. I love, love, love your mom. She's one of my favorite people ever. She's just the sweetest lady. Um, if I ever needed a flu shot when I was little, it was Helene. <laughs> do not let me have anybody else. Cause she's the only one who knows how to do it. Right. <laughs> she's just a sweetheart. And one of the biggest parts that I connected with in your book was the relationship you have with your mom, your whole family but especially your mom, because I share that closeness with my mom as well. She's my best friend. I go to her with everything. And I'm so, so lucky. In fact, um, I'll share a quick story with you. Um, Christina, who you know, she's your cousin. She's one of my best friends, grew up with her. She 
came to visit and she had brought little six month old Jaira at the time. So I, you know, did not have any children of my own. And I remember we were visiting about her mom and how she had passed away when Christina was so young. And Christina had talked about how it's hard, but she was thankful that it happened when she was at an age where she doesn't have a lot of memories with it. It would have made it even harder. And I remember making the comment, um, yeah, if my mom passed away, I'd probably have to jump off of a bridge because I don't know what I would do with my life. Like, she's my everything. I just love her. And we're so close. And, you know, I have a four and a half year old now, so that's changed slightly. <laughs> I need to stay strong for Lola, but I am. I'm so close to my mom. And one of the questions I had for you regarding that is, you know, you have two beautiful daughters, you have a son. And one thing that I sometimes catch myself worrying about is, am I going to have that close relationship with my daughter? Because I crave it and I want it so badly. And sometimes personalities are different. I do believe we will have that close relationship, but is that something that you stress about with being so close to your mom is having that same type of closeness with your kids? I do. Um, I stress about that a lot because my oldest is my daughter who's, you know, just about going to be a little teenager here pretty soon and start middle school. And, and she's just a funny little gal. There's, there's a lot of her mom, but there's a lot of her dad. He was very shy growing up, um, but she's very stubborn and strong-willed like her mama. And you know, sometimes I think we clash because maybe we are too alike and it, it worries me and going into the teen years because some of it too, my kids are very different than me. Um, they don't tell me a lot about their days, which drives me crazy. And some of it, I think they learned early on that I really want to know when I ask questions. <laughs> and I think then my oldest taught my son, like mom, you know, wants to know. And he was kind of my chatty one and he'd tell me about his day. And then like soon thereafter, he kind of mums the word. So like my parents knew everything. I mean, can you imagine like the lengthy stories I, you know, um, <laughs> pushed upon my entire family all the time about what was going on and in engraved detail. So I do worry, but I think we all worry as parents, um, not to beat the dead horse into the ground on my health, but just the last couple of weeks, I actually last the last month. Okay. Two months. September was a hard month and I've spent most of October trying to sleep off what was what became too busy for me in September, which is physically um, it sucks. And then mentally it sucks even more, right? Because I just want to live like I'm a normal 39 year old woman who's healthy, but unfortunately, like I'm not, I have limitations. And so when my health really gets crappy, then I'm worried that I'm a crappy mom. And I hate that. Um, especially when I'm dealing with some of the chronic pain I have that you know, it's like, I can deal with the dreadful exhaustion or I can deal with the anxiety. I can deal with like the 500 things I feel like I have on my plate, but the chronic pain gets, gets harder. And then I don't feel like I'm the best mom. Um, but I think just like anything as parents, we look for these little signs. And when I see my kids being really compassionate or empathetic or doing all these like amazing things that you just want so much for your kids. I'm like, okay, Sean and I are doing something right. Even if I'm tired or crabby, like we're doing something right. Um, and I love how close you are to your mom. You alluded to that when you first messaged me about the book, your mom is absolutely just a diamond, um, to show everyone on this podcast globally, like how small our town is. Mariah's mom is one of my mom's favorite people too. Right. And, <laughs> um, 
I remember, you know, you saying that right away, just like, I love your relationship with your mom. And it's kind of cool that probably, you know, in junior high and high school, I would have thought it was so weird because definitely the different generations. And then as about the second I left for college, it was like mom and I were even better best friends. We were pretty close in high school, but we were just like inseparable. I see a lot of young people, some of the gals who have been like our nannies or just these friends, they're really close to their moms at a younger age. And I'm kind of thinking, you know, you were too. And I love that. I think that's awesome. I think we all have like the benefit now of text and and FaceTime things I didn't have in those earlier days. Although I'm not sure if I would have ever gotten any work done. I probably would have been texting my mom too much, but, um, (laughs) you know, I think, I think it's, I'm again, that's just another, I'm so lucky because I know not everybody has these relationships. Some people are estranged. Um, like, yes, my cousin, her mom died when she was two. I love her so much. I would crawl through broken glass for her. And I know you would too. And when I think about that, she never got to experience her mom the way we have, like, that's really hard for me. Um, but she's an amazing person. She had an amazing dad. She's a great mom now. So I, I think it's one more maybe layer of kind of the theme and unwillable really bad things can happen to people, but you can do okay with it. Doesn't make it easy. Doesn't make it fun. Doesn't make it, you know, anything you want to have happen, but we really are resilient. And, and my cousin's very resilient. I'm so proud of her. And I just, I think the people listening to this podcast are too, for whatever brings them to brain fever. And I think it's just that good reminder that um, don't tell yourself if something happened, you'd have to jump that bridge. <laughs> Instead, tell yourself, God, bad shit happens in this world. It's happening right now, but heavy mm-hmm. emphasis on, but like we can do it. Great advice. Great advice. Um, I'll be completely honest with you. I've never been drawn to memoirs. I love reading, but I am that fiction person who wants to escape and like go into this crazy world and not live in normal life, right? That's who I've been. So I want to say congratulations to you because you've totally changed my mind on memoirs. I picked your book up because I know you and I thought, oh, you know, let's give this one a shot. And you just, the way your writing style is, it's very easy to grab the people reading the book. Um, and yeah, you've, you've completely changed my mind. I will try more memoirs now. So kudos to you on that. But when you were writing Unwillable, and I'm guessing it's a little bit of both, was it more motivated by wanting to educate people about AE and like health and all of that? Or was it more for closure to help you close that scary chapter in your life? I love that. I definitely think it was both. And I love that you're immersed in memoir now. As the great Mary Carr says, you know, who needs fiction when nonfiction is this good, right? And some of these <laughs> memoirs, you couldn't dream them up. And I, I think quite a bit of unwillable fits into that category, right? Like you could not dream up this situation. I didn't, I mean, I didn't have a great imagination either as a really boring trial lawyer, but uh, I think we learn so much from one another's stories. And again, I would write this book probably a lot differently now because I'm in such a different place with, you know, my confidence restored, my independence, my agency, the acceptance of what happened to me, the acceptance that I'll never go back to the practice of law. Like a lot of that was still in shambles when I was writing and I was writing it from a place of, oh, I'm fine now. And I can look back. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was stretching it. It was a straight faced argument, but I was stretching it. So I think there was a huge part of it 
you know, I was motivated by helping others shine awareness, shine a light on this most devastating condition and to really help myself heal. And I think maybe I had a little bit too much of an emphasis on like people will understand now, like they will read this book and they will understand. And unfortunately, that's not the way it works. I was probably fairly naive going into that because I still will have people ask me really off the wall things. And and if the intent's there, I don't mind. But I can tell you that very recently it's become a little bit of a frustration again because it's just like the book is out there. Like you've read the book. You've told me you've read the book. Like, why are you Mm -hmm. asking me this? Or why are we still having the same conversations? And I think that's just more me still dealing with my own grief. It's grief. That's what it is. It was trauma. It's grief that I just want people to understand. And I think this disease is just, it's really hard to understand. And I think without me giving you every piece of my life, it is hard to understand. And some of it is just me, right? Like I laugh it off and, and I probably look fine when I say it. And that's just kind of which sword do I want to land on? Do I want to tell people really how difficult some days like my days are? just after literally trick-or-treating with my kids in the cold and being out a little later, like I didn't feel well the next day at all. I, you know, my exhaustion and, and then we're going to go into the time change and the the joint problems I have on top of the, you know, um, I have really hard days and, but it's like in the next breath, I've made my own conscious decision to, I don't want to let it weigh me down or look like it's weighing me down. And if that sometimes means I fake it, so be it. But then I have to remind myself, well, Jackie, if someone's like, oh, Jackie, you should run for office. I get that a lot. That's really sweet, but I'm not running for office. Like <laughs> in this political <laughs> climate alone, um, right. and, you know, I have a very open and obvious story about a brain injury. So no, I'm not running for office. Plus I would never need the stress nor would I need the extra exhaustion. Um, so I, it's just, it's a really hard road for me. Um but I, I think at the beginning, I wanted this book to help others. And I really think that I have achieved that goal, that that was the most important to me. I wanted it to be for AE survivors and patients, but I wanted it to have a broader audience. And I think by what you and I are talking about today, you know, it, it does mental health or this, I think now I can understand that you want to write stories where people see themselves in your story. And I think I've gotten a lot better on my blog you know, a, a lot of blogs are a little shorter. It's a call to action. To be a resilient person, you need to wake up at five, set your alarm for two and drink Starbucks at three. And people are like, oh my God, that that's beautiful. That's the plan. I'm going to go buy Starbucks. That's not me. That my blogs are a lot more abstract. And I do that on purpose. I want people to read it and see themselves in the situation at hand. And I think that is probably where my gift lies in all honesty and I hope to expand upon that in the sequel to Unwillable, which the other day I actually cranked out a little bit of an intro. So it's it's in the works, very, very marginally in the works, but it's in the works. Exciting. That's very exciting. And yeah, I mean, I, I do. I think it was an incredible book and I think you had a lot of relatable moments and also obviously very unrelatable moments. I mean, not just everybody gets diagnosed with this terrifying you know, illness, but it is truly incredible how you and your family are still so positive. And I mean, truly, I I told you this after reading, you guys are some of the most positive people I've ever met. And I do appreciate that you can also look now and 
and say, you know, I'm having a tough day because you, you are strong, but it's okay to not be strong at times too. And I think that really helps take a lot of that pressure off of yourself. So I'm just, I'm so happy. I finally decided to sit down and read your book because it was, it was incredible. You are incredible. And Kudos again to changing my mind on memoirs. <laughs> well, you you are so sweet. Um, but you know what what I love, Mariah, is I hope that by me saying what I say, that not only does it take some of the pressure off me, that it can take the pressure off of others. And I think that's where I can channel my blessings with my talents. And if I can stand up there and raise my hand and say, this affects me, or this is how I feel, or that maybe then sometimes other people will feel where they wouldn't otherwise. They will feel brave enough and open enough to say, all right, if Jackie's going to talk about it, like I can too. And I I appreciate you being so forthcoming too with with how the book affected you um, and ideas that resonated with you, which have been amazing. Because I really think that that's, it just makes me feel so good because that's why this podcast exists. That's why my writing exists. So people can find themselves in a situation they maybe they probably won't find themselves in AE, but they'll find themselves in other situations. And, and maybe something I'm saying can kind of give them a little bit of a hope or, or they can kind of walk towards that light. So I appreciate you exemplifying that on this podcast today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me here. This has been a lot of fun. It was a lot less scary than I was anticipating. You're so easy <laughs> to visit with. So that helps a lot. <laughs> I love it. Well, before you leave now, um, I am taking the reins again. I'm sitting in the host seat and I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Yeah. I love it. Okay. So this is kind of our um, intro to rapid fire. We usually do a little rapid fire at the end. Um, first question is, what would you add to Unwillable? Was there something that you thought that I could have added to it to make it better or that would have helped you? Um, You know, I, I wouldn't necessarily say add to it, but you do mention, you know, how there are certain things that you would change in the book now, if you were to write it and I wouldn't change anything, but I do think now it seems like you have a better grasp on, you don't always have to be strong. It is okay that, you know, I do have some of this mental illness. And I think if that would have been emphasized as well, that would have been extremely helpful for one yourself because you're recognizing it then, but like you said, that was at a different time in your life when you wrote that book. You've you've had more experience with the diagnosis now. You've you've lived with the anxiety and you know how to deal it and you know how to recognize it now. So I think that was the only part because as I had mentioned, you know, I was I understood kind of that you were opposed to getting help for yourself but not others. So I think that might have might have been helpful to add that in that, you know, Yes, I do have this mental illness that I'm dealing with and it's okay. I love that. No, I think um I think there were places that maybe not even that I could have been more honest is what you're saying, but yeah, a little more forthcoming, but I just wasn't quite there yet and that is I think that makes a lot of sense and that is something that I need to be thinking about as the old sequel creeps up on me. So, <laughs> love that. What, so that's kind of my next question. What are some things that you would like to see me talk about in the sequel? As it kind of, it'll be probably about the next. So I ended that, it was that first year from AE onset to like the first year. 
And then I envision it to cover like the next kind of three to four years of my recovery till I really kind of feel like I'm whole again. So what, what would you like to see in that book? Um, you know, you were, you're very honest in your first book, just to continue that honesty in the second book and talk about like what your day-to-day life looks like now. I mean, you were a very successful lawyer. You loved your job and to have that taken away from you, you know, you do get that in unwillable. You do, you can read the pain that you have because of that, but it's also kind of seems like it's sometimes shadowed by the, but it's okay. It is what it is type, because that's who you are. That's in that there's nothing wrong with that, but to talk about what life looks like for Jackie now and Jackie's family and being truly honest about how it feels. I'm sure some days it's great. Like this is okay. This is my life now. And I'm sure there's days where it's like, man, I miss that. And I think that's very important about being super open and honest. Maybe don't be so open and honest that you're letting us know what underwear you are wearing. But uh, well, there goes my intro. If you, if you <laughs> want to throw that in there, I mean, that's fine too. <laughs> I love it. Um, oh, Mariah, such great feedback. I love all of that. Um, and yes, it's still awful because I was in counseling two days ago and I was talking about how just it's the usual crisis of like, but I saw this lawyer, but I did this, but this lawyer, and it like makes me cry behind closed doors. So that is still alive and well, um, the deep grief I have from the loss of that job that stresses all of my friends out. But that's another story. <laughs> um, they try to remind me of the stress, but they don't win. I still miss it. Okay. Yeah. Your favorite breed of cats is? Oh, that's so much fun. Rescued. That's my favorite breed. Aww. <laughs> I do. You know, I don't really know what my favorite breed is because all of my cats are rescue cats. I do believe the last little lady that I rescued is Maine Coon and they're fun because they're kind of like dogs. One, they look beautiful and she will play fetch with you. So, I mean, if I'm going to go off a breed, I'm going to say rescue, but second, probably Maine Coon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh. I love it. Um, I had a Siamese cat when I was really little, like in kindergarten and it was years, like not that long ago. I looked at my mom and dad. I was like, oh yeah, that cat was a girl. Cause she had babies. They were like, yeah, she had babies once like in the house. It freaked my mother out in, in the farmhouse. And I was like, oh yeah, her name was Oscar. And they both just kind of looked at me like, yeah, you named your girl cat Oscar. And I was like, yeah, fair enough. Um, but she was a beautiful Siamese cat. So mm. that would be fun. But um, my kids have assured me that I'm a mean mom because we don't have any pets. But that's another story for another day. I can hook them up anytime. You know, <laughs> I know you're a, I know you're a Harry Potter fan. So I'll leave with this short this short story on how we fostered and rescued Rose. We at Meowster's Cat Rescue had rescued a litter, and we did the Harry Potter theme. So Rose was actually Ron. So I had Ron and Hermione in my house. We were fostering (laughs) them and my rescue partner was going to schedule to get them fixed. So I went to go make sure Ron was, you know, how do I put this in not a gross way, but he was ready to be fixed. So I go to check and I just told Katie, I, I don't think there's anything to neuter here. I think we have a female. So yes, Ron was her original name from Harry Potter. 
That's hilarious. So I was a kindergartner with a very open and obvious girl cat named Oscar and little Ron was just a little too small to know that it was Ron, not Rosa. Yep. (laughs) That's hilarious. Okay. Final question. Most important one of the show. Are you ready? I think so. Do you prefer Elton's Gucci ropes that he closes his farewell tour with or his Dodgers letterman jacket? Oh, you're you're expecting me to know all Elton John? That's yep. not fair. Oh. Most important question of the show, Mariah. I can't miss this one. I'm trying to think of what Jackie would answer. Um, Jackie would go with A. The Gucci robe. Well, there actually is no right answer. Both would be correct because everything Elton does is awesome. Um, although Sean would argue that the Gucci bathrobes make him look like he's given up on life. Um, I <laughs> actually do have one of Elton's Dodgers letterman jackets because that sweet husband who's so naughty about Elton and constantly tells me things like he's falling, he's getting old, he won't know his name soon. He found a leather maker in Australia of all places who made me this beautiful leather Dodgers jacket like everyone was wearing at the final shows because of course they were all sold out. So I have this beautiful you know, blue Elton jacket. So I might have to say that's my favorite because I can't quite afford the Gucci robe. But yes. I mean, I think you had a great answer. I'm down with you it. Could a, you could do a knockoff Gucci robe. <laughs> you could have uh, Sean make you one of those. Yes. I, Sean just <laughs> needs to find silk and bedazzle it with like yes. real diamonds. Yeah, I think that could work. I think we can do this. It would look just like Elton John. <laughs> oh, well, Mariah, you are the sweetest, but we knew that going in. Um, Folks, you. if you find yourself passionate about rural health care, um, you can look up the Sunrise Foundation website on Google and you could find Mariah that way if you have any questions or would maybe like to donate to the um, Meowskers Rescue. Can Is there a place, Mariah, that people can donate to you online? Yes, absolutely. We have a Venmo. It's at Meowskers Cat Rescue. You can also follow our Facebook page. We have a website, meowsterscatrescue.org, where you can donate there. Um, or you can do it the old-fashioned mail-a-check. That's always, you know, we still get those in good old Bowman, North Dakota. And that's P.O. Box 114, Bowman, North Dakota. And I love yeah, it. The great cause. And Meowsers is M-E-O-W-S-E-R-S? Yes. So I, I, play, I played off of Mousers. Haha, <laughs> get it? We get, we get a lot of mousers. And I was like, mm, how can we make this fun? <laughs> I love it. I just didn't want anyone to Venmo like a group that actively supports like breeding mice over rescue cats. So you can find them on Venmo and Facebook at Meowsers. And Mariah, with that, Sean's going to take us out with some tunes. And thank you so much for guesting, hosting the Brain Fever podcast. Thank you. Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream, make him the cutest that I've ever seen, give him two lips like roses and clover, then tell him that his lonesome nights are over, Sandman, I'm so alone, don't have nobody to call my own, please turn on your magic.
magic be? Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream.